Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, the fight for diversity. Meet Whitney O'Banner, a black woman breaking the silicon ceiling. When you think of tech, programmers, or Silicon Valley, your first image is probably a white or Asian guy. If so, you're not alone. Even a black woman in tech can be stuck with that association. Whitney O'Banner has a story that speaks to the problem and the solution. A black woman techie, Whitney is supporting other women and minorities to stick with it and break through the silicon ceiling. This is a relative of the glass ceiling, and yes, Beth just made that up. Whitney has her own story of discrimination, isolation, and self-doubt, but more than that, she can speak to what she and others are doing to change that. The new Austin campus director of Dev Bootcamp, Whitney is helping recruit and train a tech student body that matches the nation's diversity. Tech is a huge part of our world economy and culture. Discrimination matters. Get an inside view of what it's like to be a black woman in Silicon Valley and be inspired to keep breaking through whatever barriers you face. Let's welcome her. And now here's Beth. Hi, welcome to our show. Well, today we are in total chaos. Uh, nah, semi-total chaos. We had a power outage over here at 5.30 in the morning, and so we were scrambling the whole morning to try to figure out how we were going to get on the air today, which you see we have done. In the meantime, however, that made us late in putting the news together, which we have done, but I don't know if it's in English or not. And uh, it seems like Skype is doing weird things with our guest, Whitney, but she will be with us one way or the other. (laughs) And our co-host, Christine Benton, is going to be joining us, and it seems like Skype is doing something. So I don't understand any of it, but we are somehow or other we're going to pull this off, right? That's because... We have a wonderful audience, and you're waiting to hear the show, and so am I. So, well, we have, there's so much news. What can I say? It's like every day I pick up, you know, it used to be the newspaper, but now it's not the newspaper. It's all digital, right? And uh, I say, oh, we should talk about this. Oh, we should talk about that. Oh, we should talk about that. And other people also send us in news items. And so it's just overwhelming. So um, James, again, has a very short version of lots and lots of stories because we're seeing some very fascinating things happening. We're seeing a lot of moving forward, we're seeing a lot of backlash, and we're seeing a lot of pushback against backlash. So take it away, James. Okay. First, a little light comedy from the business world. It seems business is realizing that high compensation for executives is a problem, even for them. So Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff is freezing his salary after hearing complaints from shareholders about his $40 million compensation. Isn't that a shame that, you know, he had to freeze that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really. The story is dated April the 11th and is from businessinsider.com and is sent to us by our producer, Christine. Benioff's salary remained flat. And he also took a 16% cut in his total compensation package. His total package, which includes stock options and bonuses, was down from $39.9 million in fiscal year 2015 to $33.36 million in the fiscal year that ended in January 2016. What a guy. Right. He really he responded to the shareholders. And, he got, and yeah. his compensation went down to, I don't know, $34 million. Yeah. Point something. All yeah. right. Yes. Now some happy climate news. It's from thinkprogress.org, April the 10th. 
A group of youngsters just won a major decision in their efforts to sue the federal government over climate change. An, or, an Oregon judge ruled Friday <coughs> excuse me, that their lawsuit, which alleges that the government violated the constitutional rights of the next generation by allowing the pollution that has caused climate change, can go forward. Federal District Court Magistrate Judge Thomas Coffin ruled against the federal government and fossil fuel companies' motions to dismiss the case, deciding in favor of 21 young plaintiffs and Dr. James Hansen. One of these young plaintiffs, Shutescott Martinez, a remarkable 15-year-old, was on our show previously talking about mobilizing youth to combat climate change. This is a great step toward a livable future. And now here's another story that you're going to love. It shows the power of compassion, and it demonstrates the compassion of Muslims toward those who have attacked them. A mosque has forgiven a hate crime shooter, and the shooter has now asked the mosque for forgiveness. Ted Hakey, who was afraid of Muslims and threatened them online, got drunk the night of the Paris attack and shot up a mosque. When the mosque leaders discovered that Mr. Hackey was a neighbor, they invited him in for a hug. <laughs> Hackey was totally transformed and apologized for his hatred. He is facing sentencing, but the mosque members have been asking authorities for a reduction in his sentence. This story came from Now This, and it's dated April the 8th, 2016. That's on Facebook. On the civil rights front, the pace of events also seems to be quickening with discrimination coming to light and being addressed. First, these days we are seeing lawmakers creating a spate of anti-LBGT laws. And then we see a lot of backlash to the backlash to the backlash. The pushback has come not only from LGBT community, but also from major corporations, entertainers, and others. In the face of the fear of the loss of revenue, several politicians have started to shift their positions and and abandon discriminatory bills. They're all hard. (laughs) In the latest, for example, North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory signed an executive order backtracking a bit on a bathroom bill, which caused a stir because it forced transgender people to use the bathrooms designated by their sex at birth and also reduced gay people's rights to fight discrimination. Protests continue, however, with Ringo Starr being the latest to cancel a performance in the state. I guess you can't just pull these discriminatory laws anymore without creating a fuss. <laughs> North Carolina has already lost hundreds of jobs from companies who are going to move to the state, and it's still facing the possibility of losing major sports events. It's interesting, isn't it, that when confronted with the possible loss of major revenue, some social conservatives show that their choices were political rather than deeply held beliefs that would stand up to pressure. Civil rights issues are up around the police and racism, too. The good news is that the Chicago Police Task Force, commissioned by Major Mayor Rahm Emanuel, blames racial bias and a code of silence for a broken police force in a draft report that calls for oversight reform with an admission of racism. The story was reported on NPR April the 13th, according to the Associated Press. According to the report, the Chicago Tribune describes the tone of the draft as scathing and says it recommends that the department acknowledge its racist history and overhaul its handling of excessive force allegations. But if that's the good news, it's of course also the bad news because this racist history has gone on for years. And the continuing saga of discrimination and abuse of women continues as well, along with actions to try to mitigate it. In honor of Equal Pay Day, a bunch of stories came out on the gender gap for women. 
Equal Pay Day is a national day of embarrassment, says Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, in a speech on the Senate floor. Women are still making only 79 cents for every dollar a man makes, and the U.S. Congress is still debating whether a woman should get fired for asking what the guy down the hall makes for exactly the same job. This story was reported in the Huffington Post, April the 12th. Today is Equal Pay Day, and by the sound of it, you would think it's some sort of historic holiday commemorating the anniversary of a landmark day that our country guaranteed equal pay for women. Warren slammed her GOP colleagues for refusing to pass equal pay legislation and instead pursuing policies that jeopardize women's health and economic security. Heck, they'd rather spend their time trying to defund Planned Parenthood health clinics and cut women's access to birth control than do anything, anything at all, to give working women a raise, she said. (laughs) On another topic related to women, there's good news, but it will make you feel sick. It's about a step forward regarding female genital mutilation which in some places is even more horrific than you can imagine. It showed up in the opinion page of the New York Times on April 13th and was written by Nicholas Kristof. Nicholas reported that Somalia's Prime Minister, Omar Ali Sharmarke, has taken the remarkable step of signing on to a petition endorsed by more than 1.3 million people that calls on his own government to fully ban female genital mutilation. His attention is important because UNICEF estimates that almost all, about 98% of girls and women in Somalia between the ages of 15 and 49, are subjected to some form of this practice. Reduce its presence in Somalia and global numbers of female genital cutting go down. A little background. People have assigned names to the various styles of FGM, all of which fall under the umbrella of mutilation. But the practice is at its most extreme at its most extreme, is called infibrillation. That is, when someone takes a blade and shears off a girl's genitals and stitches her together until she's married and declared ready for sex, whether she's willing or not. Obviously, when she does have intercourse, the experience is excruciating. The practice is a gross human rights violation. The world has come up with fewer than profound and pervasive physical uh, manifestations of misogyny. More than 200 million girls and women, mostly from Africa, the Middle East, and Indonesia, are affected, often conveniently under the pressure of religious or cultural reasons. Somalia has some of the highest rates of tribulation in the world. The country's constitution technically forbids the practice, but the country's current parliament has not specifically passed a law regulating it. Now, doesn't that make you sick? Yeah. It's obvious that this horrific practice should be stopped, and the people practicing it help to shift their thinking. Well, we're not exempt from downright lack of common sense. Doesn't cooperation make sense too? Here's a really cool story about cooperation. From the Washington Post reports on April the 13th, Sean Parker, a billionaire, is donating $250 million to cancer research. But the most exciting part of this story is that he's giving it to 40 labs and 300 scientists to find immunotherapy treatment for cancer. But the most exciting part of this story is that it is based on encouraging collaboration among scientists. It should be obvious, but it isn't so. Now to complete our news update for the week, here are a couple of blood-boiling stories about business. The first one reports a study which shows how low corporate America's taxes really are, even though tax-dodging CEOs complain about high taxes. The story is from the Huffington Post, and it's dated April the 13th. Senator Bernie Sanders, 
uh, independent from Vermont, requested the Government Accountability Office study. And by the way, Bernie Sanders has co-sponsored a bill to curb corporate tax avoidance. If you wonder why, this new government report shows just how easy corporate America has it. Every year from 2006 to 2012, some two-thirds of U.S. corporations did not pay federal income tax. Two-thirds. <laughs> did you hear that? Two-thirds. <laughs> In 2012 alone, 42.5% of businesses that the GAO defines as large did not, did not pay federal taxes, including 19.5% of big corporations that posted a profit. The findings are likely to affect an ongoing debate over corporate tax rates and increasingly creative techniques big businesses use to avoid paying them. The report also comes in the wake of the publication of the Panama Papers this month, a trove of leaked documents exposing massive tax-dodging schemes by global leaders and businesses, which raised awareness of evasion issues. Add to this a story reported April the 14th. U.S. corporations have... 1.4 million, I'm sorry, trillion. <laughs> 1.4 trillion hidden in tax havens, claims a dollars, new Oxfam. Dollars, that is. <laughs> yeah, dollars. <laughs> Oxfam is an international charity. The charity analysis of the 50 biggest U.S. businesses claims Apple has $181 billion held offshore, while General Electric has $119 billion and Microsoft $108 billion. Oh, and don't forget Walmart. The sum larger than the economic output of Russia, South Korea, and Spain is held in an opaque and secretive network of 1,608 subsidiaries based offshore, said Oxfam. And the charity said that its report, entitled Broken at the Top, was a further illustration of massive systematic abuse of the global tax system. Technology giant Apple, the world's second biggest company, topped Oxfam's league, league table. Microsoft and others at the top 10 are, the, are among the top 10 worst offenders, as are pharmaceutical giant Pfizer, Google's parent company, Alphabet, and ExxonMobil, the largest oil company not owned by an oil-producing state. And finally, <laughs> since we're seeing the dark side of tech, here's a report from usuncut.com. It's from last September, but it shows the 12 horrifying photos of the tech industry. If it's true, it's disturbing. Child labor mining the raw materials for the tech explosion, and Apple's largest manufacturer in China installed nets to prevent workers from committing suicide. But workers are still killing themselves. We can only hope that these companies are already on the case. Beth? Well, thank you (laughs) for that. Is that tax of punch, doesn't it? So we see the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, um, you know, I always get really upset when I, you know, read about these things. I mean, the female genital mutilation, which was, I think, supposed to have been outlawed in 1946 in Somalia, but really never was. And, I mean, I just, like, totally freak out. But then the only thing that makes me able to keep on going is to say, God, this stuff is being reported now. And it's just like the stories about the the attacks on the LGBT community. And I think Louisiana was one of the uh, uh, governors, the Democratic governor vetoed some horrific legislation. I mean, we are having such an interesting struggle 
on our planet and in our nation between people who are really trying to be in the oneness and care about each other and have accountability and mutual support and oneness, which is our interrevolutionary uh, program, and the people who are just sort of stuck, uh, either for completely crass financial reasons or because they really are stuck on an emotional, mental, spiritual plane. And it just goes on and on. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's you know, there was a book, Charles Dickens, uh, it was called The Tale of Two Cities, and I think uh, it started out with, it was the best of all worlds, it was the worst of all worlds, or, or best of all times. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And yeah. there is Christine, who has joined us. She is going to be joining us as a co-host today, because she's in the tech industry, and she has a lot of interest in this. And we also are happy to say that we have contacted Whitney O'Banner also, and I'd love to uh, welcome you to our show. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, Whitney, first of all, um, you know, James mentioned that you are a black woman in the tech industry, so that in and of itself is a little minor revolution, isn't it? <laughs> so, Correct. <laughs> so so where I'd like to start with you, and... Um, is the is just a little bit of a background, you know? It's like, where were you born? Where did you come from? When you were growing up, did you think of yourself as a black woman, or did you just think of yourself as a woman, or did you just think of yourself as Whitney? So tell us a little bit about you. Oh, great question. I was born on the East Coast in Virginia, uh, moved around quite a bit. So I've lived in the South in Birmingham, Alabama, where I was very aware that I was a young black girl. Uh, I grew up in a suburb of Dallas, Texas, um, had a great upbringing, received a great education, um, lived in as a minority in, a, in the neighborhood. So again, was very aware that I was a black woman, um, was very aware of my presence in this community and in this neighborhood. Uh, and then I, I went to school in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, where uh, I was one of the majority, the ethnic majorities there. Uh, and, and spent some time in the Bay Area shortly thereafter, where it's um, a, a nice mix and blend of uh, diverse backgrounds. So, um, so yeah, I've, I've, been around the country. I've, I've bounced around quite a bit, but yeah, growing up, um, as I said, I was I was very aware of who I was uh, and how I stood out in a number of ways, um, especially considering my interests uh, as as a child uh, and as a teenage girl. But um, but yeah, I've I've come to find my identity as Whitney um, and and find my place um, outside of just the spheres of being black and being a woman. Isn't that a struggle? You know, it's not like you want to deny your ethnicity ethnicity or your gender. It's just you don't want to be defined by it. And I mean, that is, that's the whole idea, isn't it? So on top of being a black woman and sometimes in a semi-hostile, if not downright hostile environment, you were techie from an early age? Yes, <laughs> yes, oh, yes. Oh, no, a geek, a nerd. That's supposed to, that's supposed to be a boy. Right? Right, right. Supposed to be, exactly. So, uh, so what was that like? That was interesting. Uh, it was never something that was discouraged by family, friends, or otherwise. Uh, I actually was introduced to a play school toy of sorts uh, that was a computer, right? My parents thought I would just 
plug in some numbers or type some little characters on the screen. But it turned out that you could actually program in BASIC on this this toy. Uh, so by studying the manual and sort of burying myself in my closet um, with this manual and this toy, I was programming in BASIC when I was maybe seven, eight years old. Oh, and my God. You're <laughs> embarrassing me. <laughs> I can't even use the programs. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Um, I will teach you. I, I don't mind uh, sharing my, my knowledge and information. But uh, so, so I, yes, I was doing this from a very young age and, and and of course, did not think it was weird, did not think it was a boy's arena, right? You didn't have a uh, brother. I did not have a brother. I had an See, older that's, sister. Oh, that's why. If you had had a brother, you would have been in serious trouble. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but I was I was playing basketball, you know, with the neighborhood boys. Um, so oh. so I had my my cool in with the boys. And but there were never there was never any judgment or, or any um, any discouragement from pursuing this interest in computers and technology. Uh, fortunately for me, that is uh, good. Yes. Until when? Until, <laughs> let's fast forward a bit. <laughs> so I, I attended Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, which is an, a historically black college for African-American women. Uh, and it's a private school, and I had a, an amazing experience, met some amazing people, and, and received a great education. And I chose to study computer science when I attended Spelman. And choosing to do so in an environment that's that fosters black women and you know and reinforces this idea that we are strong um, educated uh, empowered women uh, yeah. it, doing so in that environment was was invaluable was was more yeah. than I could have have asked for in a college experience and a collegiate experience so but then to step out of that, environment right into Silicon Valley <laughs> into <Yeah. laughs> into a very different world uh, that that was um, it did not mirror that that feeling of embrace and that feeling of um, of empowerment uh, that was when reality sort of hit and it hit hard that this th- there are not a lot of people who look like me <laughs> and yeah. uh, this is not necessarily I am not and always going to be in a room full of advocates in the same way that I am in, in my college environment. Well, can you point to, let's say, the first shocker? I mean, I remember I went to an Ivy League college when I was 16 years old, and that was back in, oh, my God, 1961, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that was a long time ago. And uh, I was a poor scholarship student, right? And um, I went to a dance and uh, was I met one of the guys, and it came out, I heard all kinds of anti-Semitic stuff, and I had never been out of the Jewish ghetto, right, because I grew up in New York. And New York, I thought everybody was Jewish, black, Puerto Rican, it didn't matter, we were all Jews, right? <laughs> That's the way I saw it. And um, so wh- when I got to the school, I, uh, you know, I, I would hear, people would say anti-Semitic things right in front of me. And uh, I met this guy at the dance, and we started talking, and when he heard I was Jewish, he said, uh, where are your horns? And uh, I know he was sort of half joking, but he wasn't. And my stomach fell out, you know, and it was the first time I realized I was Jewish in my whole life. And that was a different experience from you because you had already grown up in environments where you were a minority, whereas I grew up, you know, in that narrow world in which I existed. You know, it was there was a lot of equality among all people. 
men, right. women, black, white, Jewish, all that stuff. Uh, and I mean, I remember being totally devastated. And I can remember every instance, <laughs> you know, of things that just shocked me. And it's pushed me into a corner where I started thinking of myself as Jewish, whereas before that, I was thinking of myself as a socialist, right? <laughs> I wasn't even right. in my, my mind. So is there some particular moment where the reality crashed in on you that you can say, ah, that was it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so to speak to, to your, your last point and, and your anecdote, um, so I remember the first time I was ever called a black girl as a derogatory phrase, right? I remember the first time it was used as an insult towards me, and I was very young. Uh, so I remember the first time time I heard a curse word, right? And Because that just yeah. wasn't something that, that took place in my household, and, and I remember the first time <laughs> hearing that outside of the home. I remember these things as distinct yeah. memories, right? And, yes. and turning points in my life in the same way that you do. So um, I would say it's, it's quite interesting that the first time it triggered, I was triggered by something again, was when I was in, in the Valley and I was working already in tech, graduated school. And I, I laughed at a black joke. Now, uh, oh l- yeah, let me, let me explain oh, that. So at this point, right. Very unexpected <laughs> at this point, <laughs> at this point, it had become apparent to me. I looked up and I said, wait a minute. I, I am attempting to assimilate. I am attempting to be part of a culture and blend into a culture that is not me. I'm attempting to be someone else in order to fit into the environment in which I was placed. And it it has become so internalized and I'm, I'm so, I'm no longer self-aware that I can laugh along with them at something that, is, is hurtful. It's something that should not be said, right? So, yeah, so yeah. at that point, I was very triggered. Um, I was made very, very much aware that um, that I am a black woman, right? Yeah. And there are things that that I do not appreciate and I do not respect uh, being said in my presence. Uh, and 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 that took a lot. It took a lot to become self-aware, to become very aware of of how far gone I had become. I suppose. Did, that did you say something then, right after you laughed? Or did you have a reaction later? You know, I had a reaction later. I was in the presence of other uh, underrepresented ethnic minorities um, yeah. who, who didn't find it funny, obviously. Uh, it wasn't a funny joke, right? It was, yeah. I think, more of a reaction from me than, than an actual consideration of the joke itself. Um, sure. So so this was something that, that came up in a conversation later and came up in a dialogue later. And that's why I think it's so important. It's so important to have conversations um, like we do at, at Dev Bootcamp. I, I'll, I'll talk a bit about my, yeah. my company in a moment, but we have these conversations with people when we feel uncomfortable. We have um, difficult conversations and, and confrontational conversations almost when we don't want to, but when it's necessary um, to speak up, right? Um, because if, if someone had not done that for me, I, I likely would not have been pulled out uh, of that frame of mind as quickly as I was uh, and no, made aware. So, so the people around you supported you. Correct. Because they were also in minorities. Correct. Wow. Oh, oh that must have just made you sick. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's shared experiences, right? It's, um, you know, a... Uh, 
a woman could have pulled me aside, you know, a, a black person could have pulled me aside. Any 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 minority, it's not specific to my experience as a black woman, right? But yeah. But um it's it's so important uh that we have this shared experience as minorities, right? There's a lot of intersectionality with the issues that we face, um, especially in the tech industry and in that type of environment that we that we keep each other aware, right? It's it's as important to inform and equip and support ourselves as it is, you know, the people to whom we're, the people whom we're trying to convince, right, to, to be better <laughs> better in their own lives. I think one of the shocking things is that, you know, we have idolize the tech industry and that's why uh, we wanted to include some stories that are not so complimentary to the tech industry at the end of the news uh, today which I'm sure you heard uh, about you know companies using child labor especially in Africa uh, companies uh, and uh, China and uh, companies hiding trillions of dollars including big tech companies I think we have the idea that tech is the answer you know, there's a kind of an idolization of tech yes. in our in our nation, and that's what I've noticed. Because, okay, you used to be in a uh, let's say you were a steel worker, uh, or you were a, a car, you know worked for a car factory. Those jobs, I mean, workers lost their limbs. There were uh, there was a lot of danger, physical danger, in a lot of those jobs. Uh, safety measures were not applied. They were not the greatest. I mean, and they were hard, and there were swing shifts, and you were working all kinds of hours, and families were torn apart. And that was the good old days when we had all these jobs, right? <laughs> and then it's like, oh, now we've lost those jobs, which were lousy, but at least paid, and we've replaced it with this new, clean, green economy, tech, right? And it's like, it, it's so not examined, it's so not questioned. We, uh, we consume enormous amount of gadgetry, uh, some of which is really helpful and some of which is probably nonsense. And we don't ever think about what it's costing our planet to create these things because we are not seeing the pollution here or we're not seeing right. the child labor here. And right. so this, I mean, it really, I really started thinking about this because when I knew we were having you on the show, I mean, you're talking about one of the dark sides of tech, which is the discrimination against uh, women and some ethnic groups. And there's a lot of dark sides of tech is because it's, you know, human beings. <laughs> you know what? Unfortunately, human beings seem to carry a kind of a self-centered consciousness wherever we go. And so let me just bring in for a second now uh, Christine Benton, who is, I know you've talked with her because she's our producer and she works in the tech industry but in a different role so Christine would you like to introduce ourselves and then I'd like to move to what you're doing about this discrimination Whitney um, which I know people are going to find really fascinating but first Christine why don't you join us Sure. Hey, everybody. It's Christine, and I do work in tech. I do public relations, and mostly in the tech industry. Sometimes it extends beyond that. Um, I will have to say that I have something in common with Whitney that I didn't know. When I was a kid, um, I was probably I was probably eleven, though. I got my this will this will show you how old I am. Um, I got my first computer, and it was an Apple IIe, and I loved it. And my parents sent me to computer camp. You know how you go to summer camp? And well, I went to computer camp wow. where you learn to code in basic all day. 
Um, and so I learned to code in basic and I made really amazing graphics of like unicorns. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I was aware there weren't a lot of girls, (laughs) there weren't a lot of girls there at all. Um, so, um, anyways, you know, I've kind of grown up in this, like you were talking about, Beth, this idolization of tech. Yeah. Um, it can do really cool things. And I think it's not until, I don't know, in the past couple of years, you think I would catch on sooner since <laughs> I've been in this industry for so long that I'm, you know, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Um, there is this kind of like halo around the tech industry. Um, there, it's really um, the the satire of it's really good. There's an HBO show called Silicon Valley, and they have a company who wants to make the world a better place, but really they're just fighting over you know technology and pretending that they're noble. Um, and um, you know, I, I remember helping a. Um, a client write a write a piece for TechCrunch about how, you know, technology in nature is is neutral and we use it in different ways. But I would say I would revise that now. I'd say maybe maybe the software, but the hardware clearly is having an, an impact environmentally. Um, you know, when we go to recycle our electronic components, um, we think we're doing a good thing through e-waste programs. But you know, a lot of that gets shipped off to China where children disassemble yeah. it and yeah. get exposed to all the toxic chemicals. So um, I, I think it's good. I mean, tech needs accountability also. I still love the industry, but, um, you know, like you said, we don't talk about it as much. By the way, you're in the women's work part of tech. <laughs> I am. I'm right, Whitney. I'm in right. like the uh, gender appropriate adjacent <laughs> tech role which is public relations yeah uh, see I'm not coding anymore what happened yeah really really and also Christine is half Japanese yes. so that, I don't know whether that makes you techie or not techie um there weren't that many half Japanese people period my mom used to drive me across town in San Diego to play with the other two half Japanese people. She thought that would help me feel more included, but knowing that we were having to drive a half an hour to find people like me didn't make me feel very normal. And, and you didn't go to a college that was devoted to half Japanese women. No, I went to UCLA, which you know, actually, ha- yeah. Yeah, but I want to tell you, uh, Whitney, I have to say that I felt this just emotionally. I have to admit this. This just this little glimpse of jealousy. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, my God. You know, sometimes when I've seen these really powerful black women who have managed against all odds, you know, to come to the fore, I so admire these women and their strength, and I, I admire the the support that they give to one another is like, yes, yes, yes. you know, I'd love to be there. So on that uh, positive note, and uh, (laughs) not that we won't get back to the negative too, why don't you tell us about this dev boot camp? When I look at it, I thought dev boot camp, it sounds like something uh, new age. (laughs) New age indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Dev is actually short for developer. Uh, ah, ah, yes. So it's not the divas that that uh, that are part of the natural world, <laughs> the spirits of the natural. I was thinking about the divas in their boot camp. 
<laughs> no, no divas. No, no divas um, by graduation day uh, of Dev Bootcamp. Uh, but Dev Bootcamp actually pioneered the short-term immersive code school program, which is uh, a 19-week model that turns total beginners into professional web developers. Dev Bootcamp. Isn't that name. something? Yeah, so very new age. Um, it's it's a, a new um, arena that's that's being explored. We pioneered this model in 2012, so we are four years old now. Uh, but since uh, its inception, we've graduated over 2,200 students and taught them professional web development skills, not only to level up in their careers, to make career switches, to um, fast track their entry into the technology industry, but also to create more diverse and inclusive environments within tech, right? Which is one of the challenge that yeah. I, challenges that I faced when I entered the tech industry. We're doing that at Dev Bootcamp um, by not only teaching technical skills, but teaching what we call engineering empathy um, and also metacognitive skills to continue learning and become more self-aware as individuals upon graduation from the program. See, I think that's just fabulous. I mean, everybody needs to become self-aware. That's one of our tenets in the inner revolution, you know, is we've got to yes. be self-aware. And no matter what we're doing, we need, I mean, because we're, we're all bringing this human consciousness into everything. <laughs> and we, we better start waking up to what's wrong with human consciousness and doing something about it. So did, did your passion for doing the, this diversity program at Div Boot Camp come from your own personal experience or did it come from other sources as well? Uh, it did actually come from my experience. So I had worked in the tech industry for a few years out in Silicon Valley and I decided to attend a code school in San Francisco in 2014. And I actually chose Dev Bootcamp. So I've been fortunate enough to have gone through the program as a student. Mm. And uh, some of the challenges that I faced in the industry before attending the program, uh, I, I looked around and like I said, I didn't see many people who looked like me. Uh, we still had a, a big problem with representation of women in the industry. And so upon enrolling in the school and, and participating in the program, I looked around my class, my class of fellow boot campers, and I said, this is, this is it. They're hammering away here at a solution to the problems that I saw. I looked around, I saw women in my cohort. I saw underrepresented groups in my cohort. We had yeah. LGBTQ representation in the cohort. And here we are graduating uh, with these web development skills prepared for careers in the technology industry, uh, ready to go out and add diverse thought to, to this industry, which was amazing to me. I knew I had to come back and, and work in this space with them. What about employment, though? Like, okay, you crank them out, and uh, is there an openness? Is, is the job market opening? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the job market is opening now more than ever before, especially for boot camp graduates. Uh, as I said, this is a fairly new model, a new idea, so new age, as you describe. <laughs> uh, so, so it took it took a while for employers to become receptive, right, to students or graduates who did not have traditional four-year college degrees. Uh, a lot of that fear has been mitigated. A lot of that concern has been mitigated by us producing graduates who go on to 
work at amazing companies, uh, work at the Apples, the Googles, the Facebooks, and and smaller startups, um, Airbnbs, the Pinterests, all of those types of companies, and and. Are, we're producing stellar graduates who know know their stuff. And more importantly than that, they're eager to learn. They know how to communicate and collaborate, right? They know how to deal with things like microaggression, with imposter syndrome, with systemic oppression. All of these conversations we incorporate into our engineering empathy curriculum. So, so we're producing stellar graduates and the employers are seeing that and then coming back and, and asking for more. So um, we've, we've noticed that employers are much more receptive even now than they were two, three years ago. And the imposter syndrome is that you feel like you're an imposter? I mean, what what is that? Yes, imposter syndrome. Oh, so <laughs> imposter syndrome is feeling like you are the dumbest person in the room and everybody in the room knows more than you, right? That's when you're sitting in a lab, you're sitting in a a computer room and you're looking around and you're thinking these people are going to find out that I'm a fraud and I don't know anything and everything that that I did to get here is just, is all a sham. And once I'm found out, uh, then my cover is blown and they'll know that I don't belong here that I don't fit into this space. I think everybody everywhere has some sort of imposter syndrome. Don't you think so, Christine? I do. I think (laughs) I was born into that. I have a couple other things I wanted to add, too. Go ahead. Well, I think, you know, Dev Bootcamp has done a really good job at at placing people and um, they're getting, you know, employment and they have relationships with employers, et cetera. Um, But it's not necessarily industry-wide still. There's a USA Today article. It is um, a year and a half old, but it um, cites that um, top universities turn out black and Hispanic computer science and computer engineering graduates at twice the rate that leading tech companies hire them. Mm. So I think there's still a couple of problems is um, the minority students who are graduating um, are are not getting picked up. And uh, this is exclusive of the conversation we're having about Deb Bootcamp. Um, But also, I think it's important what Whitney said about... um, just having an awareness of not only your own bias, but biases that other people might have or your own feelings of insecurity, et cetera, because we need these, you know, talented people not only to get into the jobs, but to stay in the industry. And I'm sure it can be wearing, you know, if, um, mm-hmm. if you just kind of feel this sense of not belonging over a long period of time. Yeah. Whitney, what, what's your comments on that? Absolutely. There is a feeling of isolation that's created uh, when you're you're the only one, right, or the yeah. first one, um, yeah. as Erica Baker eloquently put it. It's um, it's it's the feeling that really wears can wear on a on an individual, and uh, I couldn't agree more that it's so important to have these conversations, right, about. Um, bias, your own biases, and also those of others that, that may be experienced. I think preparation, more than anything, um, is key. Preparing our students and our graduates for what can be faced um, in an environment unlike the one they're coming from, right? That's that's a direct parallel to my own story, right, of coming from this uh, nurturing environment of Spelman College uh, and then going directly to the Valley. A lot of it was culture shock for me. A lot of it was not feeling like I could bring my whole authentic self to something, um, and I needed to become or adopt this other identity. Um, so, 
so again, that's that's a lot of what we like to incorporate into our program, right? Is is this whole self approach, and how do we make people comfortable enough to uh, bring their their whole authentic selves uh, to whatever it is they choose to pursue as their career, ultimately uh, web development, but um, just going about life, you know, bringing bringing their authentic selves um, and not having to worry about um, some of the biases they may receive externally. If anybody out there is interested in finding out more about this program, can you tell us how people can find out and are there scholarships available? Yes. So if they would like to find out more information about the program, they can visit our website at devbootcamp.com. That's D-E-V as in Victor, (laughs) bootcamp.com. That's short for developer. Uh, And also, we do have diversity scholarships available for anyone who identifies as an underrepresented minority. That's women, that's people of underrepresented ethnic groups, um, that's uh, uh, veterans. Um, We would we offer a, an automatic $500 tuition scholarship to these individuals. Now, something big that was just announced, we've partnered with Facebook and we have an F8 diversity scholarship in San Francisco. So for prospective students who are residents of California and are interested in attending uh, Dev Boot Camp in San Francisco, we now have over $250,000 as a result of this partnership to fully fund tuition for 20 women and underrepresented ethnic groups. So Whoa. fantastic, fantastic opportunity <laughs> for folks interested in Dev Boot Camp uh, San I Francisco. Say, I should say so. You know, a lot of people, white men, are going to say, well, what about me? I don't have any money either. And you're damn right. There are men who don't have any money who need support and help. But if you were listening to our stories today, one of them is that women are still earning 79 cents for every dollar a man earns. Right. And, the, and the reality is that minorities, ethnic, uh, especially blacks and Hispanics, I mean, they're, they're the, the wealth is so limited. I mean, the poverty in the black community is so much greater than the white community, even though there's a lot of poverty in the white community. And so I think everybody needs to understand that, you know, that we're not, there is no equal playing field. And uh, uh, personally, I want to see it all opened up. I want to see everybody on scholarship. I want to see, <laughs> see everybody have an opportunity and then we will have uh, diversity. And uh, But unfortunately, we live in a world where that isn't available yet. But I certainly hope that that changes. Yes. Yes, indeed. My hope is the same. And uh, it's great to have this opportunity to at least allow for representation, right? We've seen the numbers oh, from these companies. And, and we really need representation and diversity of thought, uh, especially in this industry. That's, that's moving so quickly and shaping so much of our future. That is such an important point that you're making because it's not just for the individual to have an experience of being able to get one of these positions. It's also for the industry to be able to get the benefit of the wisdom, the experience, and the perspective of people from different ethnic groups, from uh, different genders, from different sexual orientations, and because this is the world we live in, and nobody can have the perspective of everyone. You know, that's why we need all of us, right? <laughs> because we can all bring a piece to it. So I'm so glad that you said that because tech is, because I was actually going to ask you to say, why do you think this is important? Somebody could be sitting there and saying, oh, I don't care. What do I care if there is a black woman in tech or, you know, a gay guy or whatever? You know, why should I care about this? 
Well, you know, first of all, fighting stereotypes and racism, it's whether you're fighting what I call the silicon ceiling or the glass ceiling or any kind of ceiling. It's all part of an overall fight that we're all making for, you know, equality and civil rights. But also, I think that uh, it's important to understand that this is such a, such a vital aspect of where we're going as a world, that it becomes incredibly important, not just to the individual, but to the society. So, Absolutely. Whitney, would you pl- please pick up on that? Yes, uh, it just, um, it reminds me so much of, you know, the, the, the poem, First They Came, um, and it may not be something that an individual is concerned with now, right, but you'll often hear uh, men who state that that they weren't concerned or, or didn't care as much about the um, pay equity for women until they had a daughter, right? Yes. Until it affected them directly in some way. It had some personal direct connection to them to make an impact in their life. Um, so, it, so, so it's very short-sighted to not see how this will affect you uh, inevitably, right? It will affect all of us. Uh, and, and we need this diversity of thought in order to improve the tools and the systems and, and the toys and the games and the cars and everything that we will use in our future. We need this diversity of thought so that it's improved for our, our future, for our future generations generations, right? For those who come yeah. after us. And, yeah. and they're going to look uh, less and less like us and more and more like a blended, um, really heterogeneous culture and society. Yeah, that is to be hoped. Well, it's like when Barack Obama became president and there were these black kids who looked at him and said, I could become president too. Exactly. W- what a difference it makes. And, you know, when people have hope and they have opportunities and they have the means to improve themselves, they're not going to end up in gangs, you know, because they have something better. You know, people don't choose the worst option. They choose the best option, generally speaking. And people don't have these options. They don't have the opportunities. We're going to be doing a show, because I'm so aggravated on this topic, about how, how these brilliant people are in prison. You know, people who are smart enough to create these, you know, these social networks of gangs or to get over these, you know, (laughs) these crimes. Brilliant people whose potential is being wasted because they're in a society that doesn't give them the education, that doesn't give them the means to do something else. And so this is just one of the many places where you're creating opportunities so that when people are coming up, they say, oh, my God, I could do this. I could do that. We had a fabulous story uh, that we read. There was this guy in, you know, from Florida who was adopted this town and anybody who graduated high school, he gave a scholarship to if they went to the in in, uh, Florida to a state school. And uh, it was a predominantly black uh, neighborhood, by the way, almost entirely black neighborhood. That's right. And like it got to the point that 100 percent or almost 100 percent of the kids graduated high school. Did they, were they genetically different from all the other black children in our country? No. They had the opportunity. They had the hope. And I think that what you're doing is so critically important to continue to give people hope and to give them a vision of themselves that is beyond what they've been presented with, either by the media or by their immediate circumstances. It's, it's so important. And so you guys are not just in San Francisco. Quickly, tell us where else you are. Yes, we're in San Francisco, Chicago, New York, San Diego, and we're opening up in Seattle 
of course, here in Austin and D.C. Uh, so I'm the campus director of the Austin campus in Texas. Uh, so exciting things to come, expanding very quickly, um, but definitely iterating and focusing on the student experience along the way. Well, that is absolutely fantastic. Is there anything that you would like to share in in a minute? <laughs> In a minute. First, I want to thank you so much for having me. I so enjoy this show, and I think it's so important, the the topics that you discuss, um, not just on a local level, but on a global level. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to disrupt um, an industry, really. We're trying to ch- change the way this industry looks um, and yeah. change the way this industry thinks and moves and breathes um, with the graduates that we're producing at Dev Bootcamp. So thank you so much for having me on the oh, show. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so pleased that you came on and that I had a chance to meet you. Because yes. we didn't have any chance to talk to each other before the show. So that was thank thank you, Christine, for finding Whitney, inviting Whitney. Um, it, it's just been a pleasure. And, of course, the time has flown by. So, uh, James, tell us what we're doing next week, and then we can come back and see if we can wrap things up. Okay. Next week is our topic, this election season as a Rorschach test. Let's turn our attention to your reactions. Remember the Rorschach tests? You look at an ink blot and tell the tester what you see, such as a dragon, an angel, or a Big Mac. This tells the tester about your psyche. Well, this year's primary has been a collective Rorschach test. Unless you've been meditating in the Himalayas, you're aware that the electoral season is upon us and you've been having a reaction. Most of us have been talking about the candidates and their shenanigans. But now let's turn the spotlight on us. Has this primary season, A, given you a headache? B, made you laugh out loud? C, caused you to hide under the covers. D, dragged you out of bed and turned you into an activist. E, all or none of the above. On this show, we're going to take a look at our reactions and what those reactions say about us. Once we do, let's see if we want to alter our response. So tune in, or even better, hop on the phone and join the gang as we take a look at the electoral primaries as a Rorschach test. Be prepared to laugh. And now for a final word. Well, Christine is going to be hosting that show because she's going to be interviewing me, you know, your general <laughs> expert on all topics. <laughs> and uh, we managed to actually, I, I actually managed the time well, so we have another minute. So, uh, Whitney, again, get out that, uh, that website so people yes. know where to find you. Yes, it's devbootcamp.com. That's dev, it's short for web developer, D-E-V-B-O-O-T-C-A-M-P.com. You can also contact me directly, Whitney, at devbootcamp.com if you have any questions or would like some information after the show. Well, it has been absolutely delightful having you on. Uh, Christine, would you like to throw in a comment? Oh, I'm I'm thankful. I love it, Beth, that you give me credit for this. And then Dev Bootcamp's also happy with me. So <laughs> yes. they don't realize they just totally booked, you know, themselves into a show where I had a hole. And it was so good to have you, Whitney. It was perfect. So thank you so much. And we are going to be talking more about tech in the future because nothing is neutral. Everything is used either for the good or the bad. And it's it's really in our hands how it's going to be used. And I'm so encouraged that there are people like Whitney coming up in the world who are younger than I am, 
but uh, who get it, who feel it, who see it, and who care about other people, and that's happening more and more in our world. As much as I want to cry every time I read the news, you know, I'm so encouraged that at last we have generations of people who are standing up, speaking and fighting back, not just for themselves, but for the highest good of all. So thank you all for being with us today. God bless, and tune in next week, and pass our show on as always. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.